The mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces, known as defilements, that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces, known as defilements, that we suffer. Reflect for a minute on the amount and kinds of suffering that you are aware of in your life. Both in your own mind and body, in those that you love, in your communities, in the world. And listen to what the Buddha said again. It is because of visiting forces in the mind that all this suffering has come about. If that is true, it seems prudent of us to make some effort to understand what the Buddha said and what the defilements are. Because if we understand the defilements, then we won't be caught by them, we won't be deceived by them, we won't be entangled in them. And therefore our suffering, both the very gross forms of suffering and the very subtlest forms of suffering, will be lessened or minimized. In some ways we could understand what we're doing here as just that, the interest in discovering and understanding the defilements in our, in our <coughs> mind, in our heart. With the understanding that to the extent that we begin to disentangle from them, we will suffer less. What makes the defilement so challenging is that we're used to them. We have grown so accustomed and so tolerant of my defilements, my hindrances, my way of being in the world, that it's become our personality. There's a certain uh, default level of defilements in the mind that is who we are. And it's just this kind of a kind of a uh, an ongoing level of you know irritation and judgment and pride and fear and shame and desire and irritation and anger and judgment and cynicism that is who I am. Those are the defilements. But you know, well, it's who I am. If you want to be with me, it's you get this. This is the package, you know. And even, you know, even we tolerate our own suffering because we tolerate these defiled states of mind. Now, just so you know, the defilements are not very esoteric. They're they're pretty they're pretty common. You know, they're everywhere. Desire in all of its form of expectation, attachment, yearning, aversion in its forms of fear, anger, irritation, cynicism, criticism, disappointment, frustration, uh, doubt in the form of confusion, bewilderment, uh, unknowing, the sloth and torpor, the sluggishness of the mind, the laziness of the mind, the inertia of the mind, the unwillingness of the mind, 
restlessness, the hypervigilant, overactive, perpetually distracted mind. They're so common that we think, we assume, they have to be, that this is the way it is. And they have to be there. It's, it's natural. Well, in fact, it is natural. It is na- the defilements are a natural occurring activity of the mind. And given certain conditions, they will arise. That understanding is important. The defilements arise due to certain conditions. That means if we address the conditions, the defilements will not arise. But if we identify with the defilements as my defilements, my anger, my fear, my desire, my restlessness, my sleepiness, it's who I am, it's what I've got, it's in me, or I am it, that's a wrong understanding. And that wrong understanding will get in the way of our understanding the defilements correctly and therefore discovering a way to be free of them. So the the challenge in understanding the defilements is that we don't recognize them. We're so habituated to them. We don't recognize them. And so beginning to recognize them is the first step, if you will. And just hearing that these are the defilements is is beginning to kind of wake up the mind to pay attention to these experiences a little more, not to just kind of accept them, tolerate them, but to get your early warning system uh, activated so that when not only the grossest forms of desire and anger arise, but when even very subtle forms of attachment, aversion, doubt, when even subtle forms arise, that we don't dismiss them as insignificant, that we recognize this this is it. The there's a I guess this is a universal truth. Well, it is in my life. It's not in the Buddhist teachings, but it's universal truth. That it's easier to see defilements in other people's minds than your own. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not where the work and the practice has to take place. We each have to do our own work with the defilements that appear in the mind. Yes, we can do what we can, and there's a lot of good that we all can do out of compassion and understanding to relieve suffering in the world. I don't mean to say that we shouldn't do that. We should. You know, to the extent that you feel moved, that you see the need, that you feel moved, that you feel the compassion, have the energy, of course, address the, the suffering in the world. But understand that that suffering is caused by ignorance. Not only your own, but many, many people have delusion in their mind and ignorance in their mind. And while we can address the the symptoms of suffering, we may not be getting to the roots of suffering because it's up to each one of us individually to work on the roots of our suffering in our own mind. So if we can understand that defilements are natural occurring activity of the mind due to causes and conditions. They're not personal. They're not my defilements. Then we can relax. You know, when they appear and you, and you, you, you recognize them, your, your awareness training, your mindfulness training uh, allows you to acknowledge, here it is. 
one of the defilements. Relax. You don't have to kind of... It's not a mistake. It's not like your fault. It's not like you've got to get rid of it. It's not that you have to get kind of amped up and overcharged to push it out of your mind. But relax, because it is the understanding of the defilements how they manifest, how they arise, the causes and conditions that give rise to them. It's understanding them that removes the defilements from the mind. It's not trying to get rid of them. Trying to get rid of the defilements is aversion, another defilement. Indulging in your defilements is also an, is a defilement of attachment or being identified with them. So it's the task of awareness training or it is the, the goal in, in awareness practice to find this middle path between indulging in our defilements, accepting them, tolerating them, believing them, thinking that they really are who I am, and the other end of the spectrum of trying to get rid of them or denying them or avoiding them. It's clear that if we indulge in the defilements, they will definitely grow in strength, isn't it? The more you express your anger, the more you're going to express. The more anger you're going to have to express. The more you try to satisfy your desire, it's like drinking salt water to quench thirst. The more desire you're going to have, or that's going to appear in the mind. So indulging in them is not the answer. But neither is denying them, or avoiding them, or pretending that they're not there. To the extent that we do that, that we deny, avoid, minimize, dismiss, they also gain in strength. And so it takes courage. It takes kind of a, a fortified aspiration to willingly and to fearlessly acknowledge defilements when they arise in the mind. It helps to understand that they're naturally occurring due to cause and effect, not because they're you. That understand that piece of understanding helps encourage us to to engage them. And by engaging them we begin to understand. We begin to unhook from them, we begin to understand them, and we are less entangled in them, both less frequently, less intensely, and for a shorter period of time when, we, when they do arise. So how do we approach? What is a skillful way to, to, to deal with the defilements, if indeed they're bound to arise? And once we recognize them, we have a choice. Indulge, avoid, or deal with them. How do we deal with them? You know, it's kind of counterintuitive. But when the defilements arise, to be aware of them. To just, well, I'm going to use this word to accept them. To accept this, this is the way it is right now. I don't mean to say to approve of them, but to accept that this is the way it is right now. This is the way the conditions are unfolding. This is what's present in the mind. To accept that's this is it. And it's suffering. You know, you're angry, you're irritated, you're frustrated, you're disappointed, whatever, depressed. This is the way it is. And then to sustain the recognition of them for as long as they last. Because it's that recognition, perception, recognition is the ability to, to, to perceive what is actually happening, that is the support for awareness. 
for mindfulness. Clear perception is the immediate cause for continuity of awareness. So we want to be continuously aware of them for as long as they're there. And in that awareness of them, we begin to feel them in the body, how they manifest or what they condition in the body. We begin to feel how they feel in the mind. How does it actually feel when you're just paying attention and you're not self-righteously indulging in judgment or aversion or fear or desire? How does it actually feel in the mind? How does it feel in the body? What does it do to your thought? What kind of thoughts do you have when this defilement is in the mind? What does this defilement do to your thoughts? Now, I'm asking these questions, not because those are the questions that you should be kind of thinking about, but rather as you just pay attention to what's appearing in each moment, the answers to these questions will become known. This is what it's like. It's, It's the understanding of the defilement that allows us to unhook from it. Seeing how we get caught, what it feels like to be caught, how we can exercise some restraint and not just and apply our understanding that this is due to conditions. It's not skillful to act it out. It's not skillful to deny it or avoid it, but to engage it with awareness. And then it's that understanding that allows us to kind of be with it, but not entangled in it. And there's a big difference between being angry and being aware of being angry. Being angry is being is blindly lost. But being aware of anger is there's a certain distancing in the mind, there's a kind of stepping back from it so that it doesn't feel like I'm angry. But there's a clear recognition of anger's arisen in the mind or fear, desire, whatever whatever defilement. And that stepping back uh, gives you a space, spaciousness in the mind. A feeling of being a little bit unhooked, a little bit spacious, not quite so jerked around by these adventitious visitors to the mind. When we, when we really know for ourselves how the defilements arise, how we get hooked, what the triggers are, uh, what the kind of the internal monologue that allows us to indulge in them sounds like, when we become really knowledgeable about the defilements, we can see them arise, recognize them, watch them, see them disappear, and not get entangled in them. And all the while that awareness keeps an eye on the defilements, the mind is not defiled. And so we're not suffering. There's, there's this, this distance of the observing of the defilement is not being defiled. And it's that personal knowledge, that personal experience, that empirical, uh, self-experienced understanding that is called wisdom. And it's wisdom that does the work of removing the defilements from the mind. With that understanding, we should welcome the defilements. If there's an opportunity for them to arise in the mind, we should locate it. We should find it. Because for as long as they are in the mind, as long as there's the potential in the mind, 
our life is insecure. Our happiness, our peace and happiness, our uh, contentment is unstable. And so if there's an opportunity, if there's still some lack of understanding of the defilements, we should look for it. Practice will, of course, give you plenty of opportunities to find the defilements. So I want to speak a little bit about some of the major manifestations of the defilements so that you can begin to recognize them in your own mind, in your own experience, and begin to work with them in a skillful way to understand them. Someone asked a question this morning about sleepiness. Acknowledging that she recognized sleepiness. Well, sleepiness is one of the defilements. It's a defilement because when sleepiness arises in the mind, we don't see things clearly. The mind is, is dull. The mind is often lazy. The mind is not very energized. And it just has no stamina to engage with or to keep up with the emerging present moment. And so we're just kind of waiting by the wayside for something better. Or we're kind of yearning for the way it used to be. Or hoping that the, you know, the bell rings soon so we can go take a nap. Or, and so the sloth and torpor gives rise to all the other defilements. When one appears, they're all nearby. Similarly, when awareness or mindfulness is present in the mind, the other wholesome qualities of mind, of tranquility, confidence, understanding, equanimity, are also nearby. It doesn't only work one way. So, the mind gets tired. The body gets tired. Being tired is natural. It's a natural occurrence of the mind and body. Why do we make it something wrong when we feel sleepy in practice? That's a wrong understanding that I shouldn't be sleepy or that somehow my practice should somehow inoculate me from sleepiness. It's just not so. It's a natural occurring activity of the mind and the body due to causes and conditions. And if those causes and conditions are there, sleepiness will arise. Nevertheless, if we're willing to... If we understand the danger of laziness of mind, if we understand the danger of laziness of mind, then we should be willing to engage sleepiness as a defilement. And not just buy in and say, you know what, i got to take a nap. Sometimes you got to take a nap. Go ahead, go take a nap. But when sleepiness comes due to laziness or frustration with practice or just uh, fear or pain and it's just kind of dull and just doesn't want to engage, that's something else going on. So, if you feel bad about sleepiness, it means that there's some aversion to it. We don't need to feel good about sleepiness, but we want to reserve, we want to hold off that judgment and rather understand that sleepiness is a natural occurrence of mind. So, to the extent that we can recognize sleepiness, laziness, and accept it. Accept. This is, this is the way it is right now. Now, what can I learn about sleepiness from paying attention? Well, it's hard to get curious about sleepiness because, well, we're so sleepy. <laughs> but, you know, we've all experienced a lot of sleepiness, dullness, laziness in our life. 
But what do we actually know about it? How does it come? Why does it come? When does it come? What are the thoughts that bring about this recognition of sleepiness? What does sleepiness do to your thoughts? What is it, where does it first appear in the body? How long does it last? Most of us haven't really looked that carefully, that closely to be able to say much about our personal observation, empirical evidence, if you will, of sleepiness, dullness, laziness. But if you, if you understand the, if you, if you can accept or hear that there's a danger in sleepiness, that may fuel your interest or your curiosity to take a look, to engage sleepiness. Not struggling to get rid of it. That will tire you out even more and it'll be frustrating. But rather to engage sleepiness with awareness in order to understand it. And over time, we can. We can begin to really uh, pick apart you know, the conditions that give rise to sleepiness, laziness, how it happens, the beliefs or the assumptions that appear in the mind to support our wrong understanding. And we can continue to reaffirm our correct understanding and be willing to engage it. In time, we can really understand sleepiness, laziness, sluggishness of mind. One frequent condition for sleepiness or uh, weakness of energy in the mind. Of course, if we're overextended, as many of us are in our lives, and we, we get to a quiet place and sit still with our eyes closed, well, we're going to fall asleep because that's our conditioning. When else in your life, when it's quiet and dark and you're still, do you try to stay awake? Not often. And so, of course, if conditioning and habit is to fall asleep, that's mostly what we'll do. But in, in the course of practice, after a few days, the momentum of the mindfulness builds up. There, again, there becomes a, an energy in the mind for paying attention. And a new kind of dullness, laziness, sleepiness arises. It's experienced the same way as the sleepiness of the first day or two. But if we look carefully, we'll see that it's not because I'm really tired. You know, because as soon as the bell rings, there you are, you're up, you're, you're moving about, and you're quite wide awake, and that's not the problem. It's not that you're really tired. But there's something else that's going on there, a different cause or a different condition for giving rise to that sleepiness. And it's often pain. If you're dealing with pain in the body, you're dealing with pain in the mind or emotional pain, if you're dealing with a lot of um, uh, tension like that, tension in the mind, tension in the body, you'll get tired. Not really tired, but the mind that's paying attention will get tired. And we won't want to pay attention anymore. But we need to, we need to look at, or if we look at, well, how is this sleepiness arising? What is giving rise to this sleepiness? What is giving rise to this laziness? We will discover that it is pain. It is uh, this, this tension in the body, tension in the mind, contracting around uh, unpleasant experience. Drains the mind of its energy. And so when I talk about understanding sleepiness, sloth and torpor, that's what I'm talking about. Understanding how it arises. What gives rise to this? How long does it last? What kind of thoughts go through your mind when you're sleepy, other than the thought, I want to take a nap? How long does it last? When you wake up from a nap, why do you sometimes feel just as sleepy? 
We can only answer those questions if we pay attention. Now, don't go asking yourself these questions. Instead, just pay attention and those questions will be answered. We don't need to do a lot of thinking about sleepiness, laziness. If we pay attention, we will know the answer to those questions. We'll know for ourselves because we've collected the data, we've gotten enough data, have some information about it. We know then, personally, about sleepiness. And when we know sleepiness for ourselves, then we can approach it and deal with it with some understanding, with some wisdom. And it's that wisdom which will disentangle us from the suffering of sleepiness. A second often unrecognized visitor to the mind is doubt or confusion. And in this, there, there's, there's, many, there's many kinds of doubt. You know, we can just doubt ourselves. We can doubt the practice. We can doubt the teacher. We can doubt whether there's anybody that's ever gotten enlightened in the 20th, 20th or 21st century. We can doubt a lot of that stuff. But the defilement doubt that causes us the most suffering is doubt about practice. What are we practicing for? How do we practice effectively? What can I expect as a result, if anything, from practice? Am I getting the right instruction? Am I applying the instructions correctly? Is my experience valid? What have I actually learned from paying attention for a day or a week or a year? What do I now know that I didn't know before? All of these kinds of thoughts, when they go through the mind, they subtly undermine our confidence, our commitment. They weaken our aspiration. If we don't see doubt, it will undermine our uh, commitment to practice before we even know it. But let's face it, we all have have had or have experienced doubt, and we know that when doubt is present in the mind, you can't practice. You don't want to practice. You, 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 you want to you talk. You want to read a book. You want to do anything except actually practice because you don't know that this is the right way to practice. So, to practice with confidence, we need to understand what, what are we doing this for. I tried to point to it a little bit earlier this morning, but through awareness of the way things are, we can begin to see where we suffer. And through continued seeing of the conditions of suffering, we can begin to understand how we suffer, why we suffer. And when we deeply understand for ourselves suffering and the causes of suffering, we can aspire correctly to be free of it. And if we aspire correctly and continue to practice, we will, in time, disentangle our heart from the defilements, the visitors to the mind that cause all of our, our, our distress. Well, it sounds kind of, well, that sounds kind of logical or simple or, uh, but not easy. Because to do the practice, we need a certain amount of information. What is it we need to do? How is it we need to practice? Why do we need to practice this way? And with that information, we have to think how to do it. You know, sometimes, I don't know just how it happens, but it's almost universal. Even though we have never said up front, 
in instruction, thoughts are the enemy of your practice. All of us, at one time or another, have assumed that. But actually, we need to think. We need to think about how to practice. So you hear all these instructions, and you start paying attention or start observing your your mind and your body in the moments uh, as they unfold. And you have to think about, well, how... How am I supposed to practice? How am I, what am I supposed to do here? How am I supposed to do this? How should I think about this experience? And so we're using thoughts of what we've heard, what we've read, what we've understood to support our effort, to pay attention, to understand, to, to make some adjustment in our uh, attitude, to make some adjustment in our understanding, to, to try... Uh, another technique, excuse me, if you will. And so, thinking is not the problem. Overthinking, or thinking in a way that just causes confusion or entanglement, that, that's a problem. But thinking wisely about how to practice is necessary to be able to practice effectively. And with that information and that intelligent use of information, if we observe carefully, we will gain insight. We will begin to know for ourselves, this is the way it is. This is the way reality is. In this moment, for many moments, and we can begin to see how things unfold, how the mind gets entangled, how the mind gets disentangled. That's liberating, that's freeing. To know yourself how it happens. One way that doubt uh, manifests in our practice is through procrastination. When I first heard that, that procrastination is a manifestation of doubt, I didn't I'd never heard that before, and I didn't get it. But all I had to do was sit for <laughs> another 20 minutes, and I realized, you know, when you're faced with the difficulty, you know, you've got some pain in the body, or you've got some restlessness in the mind, and you just put off dealing with it, why? Why do we put it off? Why do we put off dealing with, you know, our stuff? Well, maybe fear, maybe lack of energy, but we often doubt that we can do it. We doubt how to do it. We doubt whether to do it. And so we put it off. We just put it aside. We say, well, you know what? I'll deal with that lust later. I'll deal with that sleepiness later. I'll deal with that ang- I'll deal with that person that I'm not so angry about later. And by putting it off, we kind of, okay, there's a, a question in the mind of whether we can, whether we will, whether we should, or not. This is doubt. There's another form of doubt that's common in many of us who have a overdeveloped intellect, I guess. And that is the, the I guess it's, it's a belief, it's a kind of an assumption that we can think our way out of doubt. That somehow, if we are wondering whether to or not to, whether we can or can't, should or shouldn't, we say, well, let me, let me think about that. And we try to think our way out of doubt, and it's not possible. Because, you know, there's, there's no direct experience in, in our own mind. We don't have the experience to see our way through doubt yet. And so, for a moment, or for a day, or for an hour, one side of the argument seems to be what we can believe with confidence. And a day later, or the next sitting, the other side of the argument appears confidently in our mind. 
And so we're back and forth and to and fro, and the mind is just thinking. It's not really resolving doubt. It's not really settling doubt because it's not able to pay attention. So by observing these manifestation of the defilements, we can begin to understand them and, as I said, step back from them. See that they're present, except this is the way it is right now, but not be entangled in them. Third major category of uh, defilement is aversion. Aversion, as you know, is some kind of resistance, pushing away, striking out, or internalizing dislike. Aversion arises due to unpleasant conditions. When something unpleasant arises in the mind or in the body, in the environment, the natural mm, reactivity of the mind is to be averse. That's natural. That's just the way it is. You throw a ball in the air, the law of gravity says it's going to come down. Well, the law of karma says when something unpleasant arises in the mind or in our experience, the reaction is aversion. The three kinds of aversion are striking out, which is rage, anger, hatred, internalizing, which is being depressed, frustrated, disappointed, despairing, or pushing away through irritation, judgment, cynicism, criticism, fear. These are all forms of aversion. All forms of distancing, trying to distance ourselves from unpleasantness. But awareness training is to acknowledge fully, to engage fully with the way things are. And if unpleasantness is arising now, awareness training would have us engage it, to stay in touch with it, to feel it, to know it, in order to understand it. And so when unpleasantness arises and aversion jumps in there to kind of cover it up, push it away, try to get rid of it, we don't see that experience clearly. We don't often see the aversion clearly. And so it's working with the aversion that's necessary before we can get to the actual unpleasantness itself. Someone was asking about karma earlier. I think it was in one of the groups. And wanting, to, you know, kind of the the two-minute version of karma, why? Why things happen the way they do? Well, an understanding of the law of karma is helpful to, not really to explain, but to give some, a, po a possible understanding for why unpleasant experience arises in our life. And if we understand that, if we can begin to open to the understanding of the law of karma, then when unpleasant experience arises, first of all, we don't have to deny it. We don't have to avoid it. We don't have to minimize it or dismiss it. We also don't have to mm, uh, feel guilty about it. Like, I did something wrong. This is bad. I'm being punished. That is really not a very helpful uh, understanding. It's a misunderstanding, actually. And it only serves to reinforce uh, a sense of self that gets reified around guilt or shame or uh, fault-finding. But in fact, unpleasant conditions arise. This is a a natural occurrence of cause and effect. If we can understand that whatever arises is due to causes and conditions, is not because of me 
being a bad person. But when the causes and conditions are there, unpleasantness will arise. If we can understand that, it helps support our efforts to deal with the aversion to it. When I was a monk in Burma, there was another monk lived down the hall from me. And he was a trigger for my, <laughs> for my aversion. And he, he had a different commitment to practice than I did. And his commitment was to talking practice. He liked to talk. And he didn't need to really talk with somebody. He just needed to talk at them. And so he would uh, frequently, several times a day, would come to my room to talk. And it didn't have to be about anything. Whinging, whining, a letter from home, something he saw, something he felt, something he's experienced, something he's not experiencing. It didn't matter. He just wanted to talk. And I just got so irritated with this guy. I tried everything. I tried telling him, don't come. I'm practicing noble silence. Why don't you too? That, of course, that's my version. And then I told him, uh, you know, don't come visit me, period. I don't want to talk to you. That's my aversion. And I said, and he still kept coming. So I said, well, why don't you only come, you know, <laughs> you know at these times? Kind of put him on a schedule. Well, he said, fine. So he came at those times and other times, too. That was my aversion. <laughs> so then I just locked the door, and I didn't go to the door and let him in. Well, in Burma, all the doors are screens, so he just talked through the screen door. <laughs> no, he was not to be put off, but... <laughs> He found a way to kind of get through all of my avoidance, all my resistance, all my not wanting to deal with this unpleasantness. So I tried everything. I tried doing meta. I tried doing uh, talking to him. I tried listening to him. I tried just noting sitting or standing while I was actually listening. I tried everything except deal with the unpleasantness. Finally, finally, eventually, after all, you know, seem, seemingly weeks of, of struggle and suffering and trying to uh, get rid of him, I decided to just pay attention to what's actually happening. So I'd hear the door open, you know, down the hall, and my body would go. <laughs> 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 yeah. That's the first, the first layer of like, <clears throat> contraction. And the mind would start, oh, here he comes, oh my God, you know. And, and just to watch how unpleasant it was. At the time, I thought, there's something wrong with me for making this unpleasant. But actually, it's unpleasant. It's just an impersonal thing. The mind perceives things, some things are pleasant, some things are unpleasant. For me, that was unpleasant. Even without aversion, it was unpleasant. So it required the, uh, I had to steady the mindfulness, or learn how to steady the mindfulness to see all the, all the, strategies I had for not dealing with it, but then to actually steady the mind to feel unpleasant without judgment. And just to feel. This is, this is what unpleasantness is like. You know, we spend so much energy, mental energy, so much time strategizing how to avoid unpleasantness in our life. Unbelievable how much time and energy we put into Trying to avoid unpleasantness. Unpleasant situations, unpleasant physical, unpleasant emotional, unpleasant social situations. If we put all that energy into learning how to be with unpleasantness, we'd be much happier. Much less unpleasant, much less aversion. But it's fear of unpleasantness. Fear being another form of aversion. Fear of unpleasantness puts us through a tremendous amount of suffering. When in fact, the unpleasantness comes anyway. You can't avoid it. There isn't anybody in this room that can avoid unpleasantness in your life. It's just not possible. Our time would be better spent learning how to open to, recognize, be willing to accept this is the way it is right now, it's really unpleasant, and not get caught in a defiled reaction to the unpleasantness. That takes understanding.
It takes courage to, to deal with unpleasantness openly, willingly. And it's the understanding that unpleasantness can be, can be, can be known, can be felt, can be endured, can be... And it's not that bad, really. But you have to find that out for yourself. I can't tell you. I can tell you. But you don't know that for yourself. Until, until, and to the extent that we learn to, how to be with unpleasantness and not suffer. But once you know, then you know. That's wisdom. That's disentangling the, the mind, disentangling the sense of self from unpleasantness, from aversion, from suffering. To the extent that you understand, oh, this is the nature of aversion. This is what aversion does. This is what fear does in the mind. All these strategies. It's really fascinating to watch the strat- how complicated the mind can get just to avoid some unpleasantness. Fourth category of defilement or fourth experience of, of the defilements that's, that's really common in I was going to say the beginning, the beginning of practice, but the beginning of practice can be a few decades. Is uh, is restlessness, and and most often we recognize, or we don't recognize, uh, restlessness as the wandering mind. You know the wandering mind. You know you know the mind that wanders. You know what what is the wandering mind? You know we think the mind wanders. You know we, we sit down to pay attention to the present moment. Maybe we use a, uh, an initial object like the breath or the body or whatever. And, you know, we're there for a moment, another moment, another moment, and then we're lost. Sometime later, you know, five seconds, five minutes, five hours, five days later, we kind of come to and we say, wow, you know, my mind's been wandering. You know, all that wandering is, is restless mind. The mind is just going here, it's going there, going here, going there. It's, it's trying out this memories and plans and strategies and thinking and commenting. You know, all unrecognized. When we don't recognize the thinking mind, it's wandering. This is restlessness. The stronger the restlessness, the longer the wander. So, but again, this is what the mind does. The mind has this capacity. This is the natural activity of the mind, is to think. Natural. It's not wrong for the mind to think. The mind thinks. We need to know how to think. The mind wanders. I don't know if we need to know how to wander, but we need to see that this is what the mind does. To the extent that we see it, then the mind doesn't wander so blindly. We don't get so lost in it. We can see thinking as thinking. Thoughts are just thoughts. We don't need to make a big uh, thing of it. Just recognize thinking is happening. Let it happen, but don't get entangled in it. Don't be blind to the to the process of thinking in the mind. You know, it's not that the mind wanders. It's not the wandering of the mind that is the problem in practice. It's thinking that it shouldn't wander. If you think the mind shouldn't be wandering, then you've got a problem. Now you're going to try to stop it from wandering. That's a problem. You're going to really struggle with that one. But if you understand, it's natural for the mind to wander. It's natural for the mind to think. And then, instead of trying to stop it, let your attention be quick to recognize, oh, the mind is thinking. Then the mind, you can, the mindfulness can, the awareness can be quick to recognize thinking mind. And it can be one thought after another, but it's not wandering mind. It's a recognition of thinking, moment after moment after moment. So when we when we pay attention to our practice, we pay attention to our thinking, be careful not to judge thinking as bad or wrong. Or every time you come back from a wander, Watch what happens next. Because the wandering has come to an end. You've recognized it. 
what happens next? For a lot of people, there's a judgment. Dang. Well, or maybe stronger. <laughs> I've been wandering. Darn. Wrong understanding. Actually, when we come back for a wander, from a wander and we recognize it, we should say, yes, right on. Now I recognize the mind's been wandering. Now I'm back. But if we don't recognize that the mind's back, it'll go again. It'll just wander off. It's that clear perception that the mind has wandered, now it's back, that, that sustains or supports the continuity of awareness. Without that clear perception, mindfulness drifts off, or mindfulness weakens, and the, and the mind wanders off again. Thoughts are just thoughts. And if you look very carefully, you may recognize that you don't choose what thoughts to have. Do you? Often the mind just thinks. It thinks all kinds of things that you'd be ashamed to have showing on a screen behind you. You didn't think those thoughts. They happen due to causes and conditions. The causes and conditions are not within your control. Nevertheless, you're responsible for them. We could say, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. Meaning, whatever thoughts arise in the mind, you've got to know what to do with them. Whether to act on them, whether to speak them, whether to put them aside, whether to just kind of watch them so that they don't get the upper hand, or whether to act on them. This is our responsibility. What thoughts come into the mind is not our responsibility. What we do with them is. But only with awareness training are we going to uh, even recognize thoughts, let alone know which thoughts to act on and know how to act on them appropriately. And one last area of defilements, certainly not the least of them, is attachment. The craving, the attachment, being identified with wanting whatever it is we want. This is huge, unrecognized activity of the mind. Huge. The mind is just endlessly wanting one thing after another. And it is so... So ubiquitous. It's just it's just there all the time. That we and and we don't even see it. That's what's amazing. We don't see it. We are so habituated to the wanting mind and how we respond to it, you know, either out of frustration, I can't get what I want, or out of, you know, crazy activity to try to get everything we want, or just kind of a sense of mm, accomplishment in getting what we want. It's endless. It is just absolutely endless. But we need to understand that this is a natural occurring activity of the mind, wanting. Don't make wanting wrong, but rather make not recognizing wanting your practice. Recognize practice. Recognize wanting in your practice. Make that the goal, to recognize as soon as it arises if we keep falling for it, we'll never understand its true nature. If we keep acting it out, if we keep being blindsided by it, we'll never really understand what the nature of desire is in the mind. And it's that understanding which is going to disentangle us from desire. Fulfilling your desires is not going to disentangle you from desire. Suppressing your desires is not going to disentangle you from your desires. Watching looking, observing, really getting in there and understanding how desire moves the mind, what it does to the mind, what it does to your thoughts, what it feels like, that understanding will begin to create the distance, the space in the mind not to be entangled in desire. When desire arises, see it. You don't need to be in it. You don't need to be entangled in it. It's not yours. 
but it's your responsibility to see it. So these are the the visitors to the mind that the Buddha said cause are the condition for, for suffering. All that suffering is not seeing and not deeply understanding these defilements that appear in the mind. It is the goal, it is the challenge, it is the task, it is the practice of awareness to to understand these defilements. And through understanding, through this deep personal realization of the nature of these defilements, we can be free of them. That's why we practice. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. <laughs> 